Continuing our walk through the Gospel of Luke, uh, this passage immediately following the Christmas narrative, Luke chapter 2, beginning with 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, You now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to call the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When I looked at this passage in some detail this week, I was actually struck by how many things there are in it that I could talk about. Um, there's a number of things in here that, that could make a sermon in their own right. I could do six or seven weeks on this passage pretty easily, um, but I won't. But a couple of those things that I could have preached on was Jesus' fulfillment of the law. I don't know if you notice, as I read through that, how often the law is made reference to by Luke. Verse 22, according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of Moses. Verse 24, in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. Verse 27, the custom, uh, to do what the custom of the law required. Verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. I don't think Luke is doing that by accident, 
Jesus, by the way, um, part of what he did for us is that he lived his life in perfect conformity to the law of God. And that starts before he even knows what's going on. When he's eight years old, his whole life fully satisfied the law of God. Um, And Jesus later said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he came for us because we are sinners. So he kept the law of God perfectly for us. And, uh, and that's why his death on the cross for us affects our forgiveness. He satisfied the law of God. I could have talked about that at some length, but I won't. Could have talked about the poverty of Joseph and Mary and God's concern for the poor, which was the theme last week's Sunday, if you remember. They come and they offer a sacrifice, and they should have offered a sheep or a goat, but there was provision for, if you were poor, you could offer a pair of doves or a pair of pigeons. And Luke makes a point of saying that that's what Joseph and Mary brought. They were poor. They were not rich. Could have talked about that. Could have talked about the character of Simeon and of Anna. Simeon is called righteous. That is a word that has to do with his behavior. It's an external word. It has to do with how he lived his life. Um, he's also called devout which is an internal word. It has to do with his heart. It has to do with his posture toward God. And both of those things have to happen together in God's people, right? You can't just be righteous. You can't just have the behavior if your heart is not appropriate towards God. And you will not have a heart that is appropriate towards God and not have it reflect itself in your behavior. you got the heart, and we have how we live. And Simeon exemplified that. Could talk a lot about how we are to be Anna, a woman of fasting and prayer, always at the temple. If the doors of the church were open, she was always, always there, as it were. Just worship was the center of her life. It could have talked a lot about their character and their, the expression of their faith, which is a good example to us, but I won't do that. could talk about being led by the Holy Spirit. Simeon had the Holy Spirit of God on him. He'd been told by the Spirit that he wouldn't die until he'd seen the Christ. Prompted by the Spirit, he goes into the temple on that particular day. And then the Spirit comes on him and he prophesies about Jesus. Okay, the Spirit is... Uh, these early chapters of Luke 1 and 2, the early years of Jesus' life, there's references to the Spirit left and right. Could have talked about that. Could have talked about who Jesus is. And, uh, and that's probably what the text is about. And so I'm kind of departing from my own philosophy of preaching to not sort of land on that for this sermon. But Simeon says of Jesus that he is the salvation of the Lord that God prepared from, you know, from early on. It was always about Jesus, the salvation of the world, for the Gentiles as well as the glory of Israel. That he was destined to, call the, the, to cause the rising and the falling of many. In other words, the destinies of everybody is, is centered in this person, Jesus. Could have talked about that and will again at some point, but not today. Could talk about the fact that, the, that in Jesus, the thoughts of everyone's hearts are revealed. You know who people are by their, again, posture toward Jesus. Um, that was true in Jesus' day, right? The religious people who were all God-pleasing, the thoughts of their heart were revealed. They turned out that they were hypocrites. They were the ones who got Jesus killed. Meanwhile, the sinners, 
Gentiles, prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, all of the marginalized people, the thoughts of their hearts were revealed in the fact that they humbly were the ones who responded to Jesus, began to engage with him, and Jesus seemed to have, have special favor for them. So when Jesus enters the mix in any significant way, the thoughts of our hearts get revealed pretty quick. We discover what we're attached to, what we're willing to let go of or not let go of. Our character gets revealed. Uh, could have talked about that for half an hour, but again, I won't. What I do want to draw attention to um, has to do with the longings of our hearts. There's something that is said about both Simeon and Anna that you could gloss over it and not necessarily put them together, but I think Luke includes them both on purpose here. A man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Later on, Anna comes up to them and prophesies about Jesus and then speaks to the people who are gathered around. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to, the word there is waiting, same word, who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And what strikes me about Simeon and Anna is that Luke reveals to us what their hearts were longing for. Simeon was hungry. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. When do you need consolation? You need consolation when things are painful when life is hard or when things are a mess. And so for Israel at this time, the time of the Roman Empire, oppression, they hadn't been a free nation for a long time. They were not their own rulers. They had, they had Roman officials, Roman army, who were, just had the freedom to tell them what to do at any time. And they were longing for their freedom. Life was hard for them. They felt like they had been abandoned. Where is God in all of this? And I don't, I, don't, I don't think I just guessed that that's what they were feeling. In, in the scriptural witness, there is a 400-year gap between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament period, and then the events gearing up for the birth of Jesus. And God was not entirely absent. I think he, he spoke and was doing things. But there was a sense of abandonment for the people. There was, I think this gap in scripture reveals the fact that the people did not know God or have his word to the extent that they normally did. And so they needed consolation in their sense of abandonment. And Anna, resonant with the people around her who were longing for the redemption of Israel. Redemption is a word that has to do with freedom. It has to do with slaves being bought and released. It has to do with prisoners of war being set free. And Israel felt, felt like they were in captivity. And they were longing for the redemption of Israel that was going to happen at the hands of this Messiah that they were waiting for. The point simply being that Simeon and Anna, even though they, even though they didn't know who he was specifically, were longing for the one who is going to come and set things right. When Mary and Joseph walked into the temple area to have Jesus dedicated to God, Simeon and Anna knew this, this was the one. This is the one in whom the longing of my heart is centered.
And, and I want to ask us and ask us to consider thinking about the longing of your heart or what it is you're waiting for. Because most of us are waiting for something. We might be waiting for the resolution to this health issue. We might be waiting for our financial issues to be dealt with and to go away and for us to be in a place of security. We might be waiting for the answer to this prayer that we've been praying for maybe for years and years and years about somebody that we're very close to. We might be waiting for our marriages to get stronger. We might be waiting collectively for what God wants to do to glorify himself here in this congregation and through this congregation to the world around us. And you might be waiting for something else, for your satisfaction in your job, waiting for whatever it is that will make you content. There's a restlessness. You're waiting for God's direction or guidance in some particular thing. Most of us find ourselves waiting for something. And if we are waiting for something, that usually means, not always, but it usually means that there is a level of dissatisfaction in our life, that there is something that is missing. And if, we only, if this would just come, all the pieces will be in place. Life will be more satisfying. I will feel less anxious. I will finally be at peace. What is it that you are waiting for? It's okay to wait for those things. But I would suggest to you and to me that ultimately the thing that we long for needs to be Jesus, his very self. That in Jesus himself is joy and peace and satisfaction and security and hope for the future. I wonder, I wonder this about myself, and I need to wonder it more often. And this morning, I wonder it about us, how deeply we long for and desire Jesus himself. I think, in my observation, at least recently, that that desire for Jesus is an increasing desire here. Increasing in the sense that more people are desiring him, and that we are desiring him more in our own hearts. But I wonder how much of it is, is a longing for him. I, I sometimes say on a Sunday morning, sometimes when I'm leading or in prayer, that there is a danger for us to come and do church. There is a danger for me as a pastor to prepare a message about God, dealing with the sacred word of God, and yet to do it separate from him, that it's a paper to be written, a project to be completed. There is a danger when I choose songs or when we as a team practice, there's a danger to do that thinking, okay, uh, we start the service with 20 minutes of music, what should we do? And without thinking of people coming hungry to engage with God and how can we facilitate an encounter with God. There's a danger in my handling the word of truth, but not in a way that says, this is the living word, it's bread for your souls, we need this. There's a danger even in our prayers of not being particularly conscious of the nearness and goodness of God. 
And it's pretty easy for us to, to do this stuff, to have communion, and yet, yet not realize in the moment that what our hearts are most desperate for, above all, is God himself. And everything else, even that's connected with church, is, is one step away from the center. We don't pray because we need prayer. We pray because we need the God to whom we pray. We don't, we don't worship together because we need each other, but we need the Christ whose body we are a part of. And if I'm not engaged with you, my experience of God is lessened. We don't, we don't have communion because we need to be reminded of something that Jesus did. We have communion because we need the Jesus who died for us. And same with the songs and, and same with everything else that is a part of our Sunday morning. It is God himself that we need. And I'm struck by Simeon and Anna that they were, they were waiting for the consolation, the redemption of Israel. And when they saw Jesus, they knew that this was it. And I don't want to sound like a broken record, but in this fall that we have just had, we have very intentionally, you could probably say it with me, focused our energies and intention on Jesus. And that's by design. And I hope that as we see Jesus more clearly, that in our hearts, as he comes increasingly into focus, that in our hearts we, we say, yes, that is what I am waiting for. He is who I'm longing for. That as he is more clear to us, that the conviction in, in our hearts that he is the center only increases for us. And I asked the question in our New Year's Eve service, our gathering on Friday evening, just invited people to think, you know, what, what word or two words would you say that you hope defines our church experience in the next year? And, uh, and people shared some things, and words like joy, and I hope that that characterizes us in the year to come, love for God, love for each other. For me, scripture, I think having scripture be central to our experience as a church. But ultimately, there really is only one word, and it's Jesus. And I hope that Jesus defines our life as a church in the year to come to a level greater than we've experienced before, that you know, come December 31st, the year 2011, in, in our New Year's Eve gathering that when we share, that the recurring refrain is, I can't, I can't believe how much we've grown in Jesus this year. I can't believe the love that we're seeing for Jesus. I can't believe how I see Jesus in the people around me. I can't believe how in this year we've begun to live out the values of Jesus increasingly. I can't believe how, how much better I know Jesus than I did a year ago. And I pray that he is the longing of our hearts, that it's engagement with him that we're waiting for. Because that's the kind of thing that God wants to respond to. And I, th and I think, just to bring us back to Simeon and Anna, I, I, think that, I think that as our hearts long for that, that God wants to bring Jesus to us. And that we will come to a place, in a sense, where Jesus is brought in by Mary and Joseph and, and we recognize it. This is it. This is it. And that God will answer the longings of our heart.
We're going to celebrate communion in just a moment or two. And in the celebration of communion, we do remember the death of Christ, but we use the word communion on purpose. Union meaning, you know, one, and come means with, so to be one with each other and with Christ, that in our celebration of communion, we are recognizing and affirming and maybe even basking in the unity with Jesus Christ that we have. And that that speaks to the longing of your heart because the redemption of God's people has been accomplished, but we long for him nonetheless. In preparing for this, I'm going to lead us in a song. And it's the song, Once Again. And I, I picked this song particularly, not just because it has to do with the death of Christ and the cross of Christ, but because it's New Year's. And New Year's for us is a time of resolution and making changes. And sometimes on January the 1st, we find ourselves making the same resolutions that we did last year. And we think, what am I, you know, once again, I'm wanting to change the same things. I didn't move forward this year as much as I wanted to. And maybe, you know, once again, it's good for us to just consider the cross, to think upon the sacrifice of Christ. And uh, so maybe don't worry about the resolutions that you want to make and probably won't complete anyway. But, you know, for us, maybe it's good enough to once again stand face to face with Jesus crucified for us and to think about that and to let that move us into the, into the year to come. Jesus Christ, think upon your sacrifice. You became nothing, poured out to death. And many times I've wondered at your gift of life.